It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We're well underway. And uh, the ability uh, for uh, the administration in any way by failure to recognize this is our win uh, does not uh, change the dynamic at all of what we're able to do. The peaceful transfer of power is a cornerstone of American democracy. But right now, President Trump is not only refusing to concede this election, he's also denying the incoming Biden administration access to key documents, funding, and information they need to ensure a safe and smooth transition. Now, the formal transition process is actually a pretty new thing. Congress passed the Presidential Transition Act just over 50 years ago. And things proceeded from there with relatively little drama or problems until 2000. Mr. President, so you don't accept Florida's certification of George Bush as the winner? It's not up for me to accept or reject. There is a legal process here. You know, let's just watch this happen. It'll be over soon and we'll be ready for the transition. It wasn't until weeks after that Bill Clinton cabinet meeting, December 12th, 35 days after the election, that George W. Bush was officially declared the winner. That gave then-president-elect Bush just over a month to plan for and staff his administration. Of course, nine months later, the September 11th terrorist attacks happened, catching the nation and a relatively new president off guard. When the 9-11 Commission report came out in 2004, it pointed to this truncated transition as a weakness and recommended a more formalized process. Catherine Don Tempest is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. She's also the senior research director at the White House Transition Project. So laws were passed uh, in the 2000s. There's been sort of three sets of laws that have been passed to kind of, they keep refining it and keep refining it. But what they did primarily is that they enabled the winning candidates to receive funding to start their transitions after they were formally nominated. So that meant that once Biden was the Democratic nominee, he was, a, he was provided with office space, some funding for salaries, and the ability to start planning ahead. Talk to us a little bit about how worried you are or how worried we should be as Americans about this. As you pointed out, the attacks on 9-11 happened, you know, not that long after President Bush took office. If something happens January or February of this coming year, would the Biden uh, administration be potentially uh, unable to respond because they just simply didn't have the staffing and they, they didn't have the time to, to ramp up and be ready. Well, let me back up just a bit to point out that um, there are basically two important phases of the transition. The first I pointed out was after the, the nominee has been formally nominated by the party and they receive some resources. The next big tranche of resources comes after the head of the GSA has ascertained the next president of the United States, and they use that verbiage, ascertain, that verb. I'm not really sure why, but, um, and that's the point at which the president, the incoming president can start to have access to classified material. They can start to be part of the president's daily brief, which is the, tells them all of the national security issues. It enables the Biden transition team to have access to all of these individual civil servants and political appointees at the various agencies so that they can interview them. So what's happening now is they are preventing the Biden from moving to the next phase. And what I would argue is the most important phase of the transition. It's critically important that the Biden staff members 
be able to go to the Department of Justice, for instance, and to be able to interview the FBI director, the head of the criminal division, the head of the National Security Division, to try to get a sense of what's the lay of the land, what are the priorities, what are the crises that might be boiling over by the time we get here. And that's what they're being denied. So I think there should be a lot of concern about this, the, the inability to advance to this next stage of the transition. It's not to say that it's going to necessarily result in some sort of crises. I don't know that. But we want a country that's prepared. So it strikes me as we're basically just sort of harming ourselves for no apparent reason. And we're inhibiting our ability to be in the best possible situation we can be on January 20th. And there's no reason for that. We have the resources. We have the capacity. So why? So let's talk about the why and and the who. So Emily Murphy is a name that most of us probably weren't familiar with until now. She is the person who is at the head of the GSA. Can you talk a little bit about how her role, what her role is, and how much leeway she has to continue to uh, refuse to release these funds or to allow the Biden team to start integrating with the outgoing Trump administration? So Emily Murphy is the administrator of the GSA. It's a political appointment. And the GSA itself is is largely responsible for all the government real estate. So they help provide office space and oversee office space. Um, You know, and, and in most situations, you would never even hear of the GSA. In this particular case, because all the transition funding, the legislation housed it in the GSA, she has the capacity to release the funding and the resources to the party nominees and then eventually to the president-elect. By law, she is the one that has to ascertain the election, so there will be no funding going out until she does it. So what's tying our hands? I mean, she is appointed by President Trump. She must be a Republican who has some loyalty to this administration and is unwilling to buck the advice she's getting, probably from Mark Meadows, probably the chief of staff who's weighing on her. So what happens? The electors meet in mid-December, and they certify the results of this election. Is that the time in which you could argue that there just is is no formal or legal option for the president to continue to, to sort of uh, mm-hmm. obstruct this process? Right. I think the meeting of the Electoral College and the electors casting their ballots and if, if the numbers show that, you know, Biden exceeds 270 as he as they appear to now, it strikes me that there is she has no justification to deny the Biden campaign or President-elect Biden hit the resources. However, this is a norm shattering president. Right. And we've never had a president who has not conceded when he's lost the election. So Normally, I would say, yes, you know, that is clearly a decisive moment in American history when the electors cast their vote. And if Biden exceeds 270, he is the president. At the same time, I honestly don't know what to expect in this administration. It's very hard to predict. Um, Many of his political appointees have been loyal to the core. You use the word norm or term norm shattering. And I'm wondering how close we are to instead of norm shattering, actual democracy damaging, I mean, really fundamentally undermining the integrity of our government and the things on which it is built? I would contend that President Trump, along with many senators who are denying the facts of the election results and are upholding sort of Trump's 
baseless claims of fraud um, and stealing the election, that they are undermining the very tenets of American democracy. In order to have a healthy democracy, the citizenry has to believe in the institutions. They have to believe that the elections that they vote in are free and fair. And by actively perpetuating this notion that there has been fraud and some sort of stealing of votes, you are undermining the important tenets of American democracy. And that has long-term implications. And we are already at important, and I would say, high level of turmoil in this country. The pandemic has wrecked havoc on the economy. Various incidents across the country have heightened racial tensions in this country. This is not a moment where we then need to undermine yet another important aspect of American democracy. How much can the Biden, incoming Biden administration do, Catherine, with the outgoing administration, sort of informally? In other words, what's stopping, say, folks from calling up Anthony Fauci and saying, can you kind of run us through what's going on over there or, you know, other other folks in within the administration to at least have, you know, a download that's not official, but is still, you know, going to give them uh, some information. So I, th- I don't think there is anything that is stopping um, the current political appointees and the current civil serv- servants from reaching out to some extent, to the Biden people. I think the biggest issue is that the Biden people cannot have access to top secret and classified material. And I think the levels of classification in this country are such that often things that are really mundane are classified. So I suspect that that means they don't have access to very much material at all because so much of it in our system is classified. And that's a big problem. Um, The other thing is that the transitions, um, because of the law, the agencies are required um, early in January, February, to start to put together an, a comprehensive report about the state of the budget, about the staffing, about very, everything that has to do with that particular agency or department. So these reports are ready. They had to be ready by November 1st. And I don't know whether those can be handed over. I suspect that they are part of the formal transition because the legislation requires that they prepare these reports. But that's another thing that's being held up. I mean, they've already been prepared. These people have been laboring over these for months. They can speak to former White House staff members who have departed and maybe have worked uh, either in the executive office of the president or in the various departments. Again, they can get information that way. But I, I, I suspect that some of these people are bound to keep the classified information classified at this point. And I think nobody wants to run the risk of violating those laws. So to me, that's a huge impediment. Right. And, and especially as you pointed out, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And I assume a lot of important information there. Do we think that any of that could be considered in sort of the top secret section? Or it's it's just more about being able to access the real information, the data that is not public? Yeah, all of the data. Like, Think about the Labor Department um, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics that has all of that information about joblessness. I mean, there's important problems in this country. And where where is the most joblessness occurring? And what sectors of the economy are likely to rebound first? And, you know, which ones might we have to bail out? I mean, there's just a laundry list of information that you would like to have going into accepting the biggest job in the world. <laughs> you know, the other side of this coin, too, is that it's not just, you know, the practical purposes and all, and all the sort of 
roadblocks it's impo- it's posing for the Biden campaign to stand up a government and be ready to hit the ground running on January 20th. It's that the world is watching. And we are supposed to be kind of this flagship of democracy and fairness and openness and participation. And we're kind of flailing right now. We're in disarray. And our enemies can see that. And even those who aren't our enemies, our friends, it it doesn't make us look good on the world stage. And it's not necessary. This is sort of a self-inflicted wound that we don't need to be doing. Catherine Dunn-Tempest, I appreciate you coming on, helping us understand this process. We're probably going to be talking to you a lot more in these next few days. So (laughs) thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking about presidential transitions, and while President Trump hasn't conceded the race, he does seem to be cleaning house. In the days since the election, there have been a number of high-profile firings. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, Lisa Gordon Haggerty, the administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration, Bonnie Glick, the deputy administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, Neil Chatterjee, the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Michael Kupperberg, the scientist who oversees climate change for the U.S. Global Change Research Program, and more are expected. With just two months left in the administration, I wondered, why do this now? Lisa Ryan is a reporter covering federal agencies and the management of government in the Trump administration for The Washington Post. As you said, there's been a a slew of firings. And in fact, yesterday we had more at the Department of Homeland Security, um, uh, the head of um, cybersecurity, the cybersecurity operation there, as well as another assistant secretary involved in international um, projects. And of course, we have the Pentagon, one of the biggest ones. Um, you know, it's it's really um, hard to divine what's going on. And, you know, it's been described as a number of factors. One it is clearly that uh, Trump had personal animus, right, against some of these higher profile officials like Mark Asper, the defense secretary, um, you know, Gina Haspel, the intelligence director. I mean, CIA director uh, is also said to be um, under consideration for firing, but I think um, cooler minds are trying to prevail on the president. But some of the lower level agencies, like the head of the uh, Nuclear uh, Safety Administration, you know, which guards the, our, our nuclear weapons, um, you know, USAID had a big shuffling of people, um, and some uh, climate, uh, a climate or um, a team that you know produces the National Climate Assessment. Um, it's it's. Described, these are described as people, I think, who have tangled with the administration in doing what, in doing different things, carrying out different things that they, than they wanted. For example, um, the cybersecurity guy, DHS, apparently had a website up that was uh, just in the past, you know, week that was noting, um, uh, tried to sort of put reality on the voting and saying, no, actually, um, these are areas where, we know, we're not disrupting the election. This has been a free and fair election. And you can imagine uh, that that would um, unnerve the Trump people. And so that's one theory. But then the other piece of this uh, is that what we might expect in the, in the next, you know, two months is that the administration will enact uh, policies that, let's say, it felt it couldn't do, but it wants to do by the end of the term. 
Yeah, how much can it really can you really get done in two months? I mean, obviously, there's nothing legislatively that could happen, but you're saying they could enact policies that could be significant, and and could the Biden administration then be forced to live under those? That's what's really unclear now. So at the EPA and the Interior Departments, for example, and this is not really related to any staff movements, but uh, you've got a bunch of um, regulations, environmental regulations that are essentially rollbacks um, that we've seen so much of in this administration, but these are kind of the final ones that they really want to do. And they're now in, you know, the final stages, right? So those things could happen. And um, what what is likely to happen with those is that the Biden folks would, um, you know, would use uh, a, a law in Congress to try to try to undo a lot of those. Now, you know, we, we've there's been a lot written in the past few days about the Defense Department, and you know, there are various theories. I mean, one which seems which seems pretty far fetched. Oh, you know, they want to go to a war with Iran, or they want to take some action against Iran, and that's why you know they put in this team at the Pentagon, or more likely, you know, they want to accelerate troop troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. That's another theory, right? I I don't know that that is going to happen. And it's something that is hard to do on a dime. Um, And then, of course, the more, I think, you know, worried Democrats are thinking that, you know, Trump wanted a new team at the Pentagon to put down any protests that might arise, whether it's more, you know, racial justice protests or, you know, protests of, of his uh, resistance to declare Joe Biden the winner. I mean, I just don't know. And that's kind of the scary part, right, is that we've got about two months left and uh, we don't know exactly what's what's going to unfold. But I think what we will see generally, um, you know, regardless of these uh, shifts in personnel is, and this happens really in any administration, uh, you will have you know, 11th hour efforts to sort of for the Trump folks to kind of get their um, their priorities in. For example, just this week, uh, they signed a contract uh, management at the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, you know, labor contract with the employees there. This is like 250,000 employees. Uh, that's pretty harsh and very much was a product of of a lack of bargaining and uh, is not really friendly to the union. They were careful, you know, They've taken a very anti-union stance in this administration. They were careful to kind of wrap that contract up. And it will be very hard, I think, for the Biden people to come and undo it that easily. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa Ryan, this has been really helpful. And I appreciate so much you coming in and talking about it with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a lot of change and it's going to be really interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be very busy. Most people after an election and during the transition they're kind of bored, not you. <laughs> not no, you. Because this is where government and politics intersect, so it's fun. Lisa Ryan is a reporter covering federal agencies and the management of government in the Trump administration for The Washington Post. We spoke on Friday morning. Setting aside the drama at the presidential level, there are plenty of transitions that are happening in Washington. 
On Thursday, newly elected members of Congress came to Capitol Hill for freshman orientation. While the polls suggested big gains for Democrats in the House, the party actually lost ground, at least eight seats, and maybe more, leaving Democrats with the slimmest of majorities. That's led to lots of finger-pointing among House Democrats about who or what is to blame for their poor showing. Many moderates argue that the push by progressives on issues like Medicare for All and police reform cost them seats in more conservative districts. I had the opportunity to talk to two incoming Democratic freshmen about their expectations for their new job and this disconnect between the more moderate and progressive wings of the party. First up... My name is Mondaire Jones, congressman-elect... Uh, let me do that again. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I'm going to be saying this, man. This is kind of cool. My name is Mondaire Jones, representative-elect from New York's 17th Congressional District. New York's 17th Congressional District is home to some of the ritzier zip codes in the country. It also has some rather famous constituents, like Bill and Hillary Clinton. But that's not the whole story. When I was on the campaign trail, I described New York's 17th Congressional District as like a tale of two cities. Obviously, it is one of the more affluent congressional districts in the United States. Uh, but as the New York Times said in its endorsement of my campaign, uh, there are also pockets of deep poverty, like where I grew up uh, in the village of Spring Valley, for example, a working class community where I was raised in Section 8 housing and on food stamps. Uh, and there are many places throughout New York's 17th congressional district like Spring Valley. Uh, and of course, many, many people uh, are defined as housing burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of their monthly income towards housing expenses. Uh, we are no stranger to the devastating effects of climate change, especially in our river towns. Uh, and we are familiar with ice rates all throughout New York's 17th Congressional District. Uh, and so we've got our share of challenges. And I'm really excited to be uh, on the cusp of providing representation to all parts of New York's 17th Congressional District, not just the affluent portions. Yeah. So tell me how that works, because, again, I think that many members of the affluent part of your district consider themselves to be progressive or progressive minded. But when the rubber hits the road, how open do you think this district's going to be to understanding the needs of the others that don't exactly look like them? I think demonstrably, this district is already quite understanding of the fact that government must work for everyone, not just a subset of the American population. Uh, it's why I have found so much success in my own run for Congress. Uh, someone who did not shy away from fighting for the big structural changes to meet <laughs> our greatest challenges. Uh, and I have been rewarded at the ballot box uh, because of that message. People are ready. I want to pick up on that, people are ready, because we've been hearing reports from within the House Democratic Caucus, from some incumbent members, especially those in sort of swing suburban districts who say, you know what, the the message that progressives were putting forward on things like defunding the police or democratic socialism argument really hurt us. This is what the moderate members are saying. And there's no way Democrats can hold the House while also pushing through an agenda that many members of the Progressive Caucus would like to see done. So tell us, you're a new member, so you don't know 
maybe you know some of these people, but you don't have relationships yet with your caucus. But what are your expectations as you come in about balancing that? And and again, what are you going to say to more moderate members of the Democratic caucus who say, you know what? No, my district isn't ready for the kind of structural change that you say that yours are ready for. My expectation is that we will have a data-driven conversation about why we lost House seats this cycle when we should have grown our majority. Uh, One observation that many people, including myself, have made uh, is that all of the candidates in swing districts running on a platform of Medicare for all uh, were reelected in their respective swing districts, Katie Porter, uh, Mr. Golden in Maine, and others. Uh, And so it cannot be, as at least one person suggested, that running on big structural changes that meet the moment, especially in a context where uh, a majority of the American people support Medicare for all in the midst of a global pandemic uh, is somehow fatal to one's electoral prospects. Um, I think that, you know, defunding the police is a separate conversation. And so we need to really, uh, we need to really look at the data on that. But the most important piece I want everyone to take away with is that no one ran on defunding the police. (laughs) No one running for Congress ran on defunding the police. Uh, I certainly didn't hear anyone say that. I didn't say it. Uh, and so it's it's really important that we have a nuanced conversation um, when when cool heads can prevail. And I'm looking forward to participating in that and to bridging the ideological divides uh, that that sometimes uh, you know make make the headlines, but in actuality are not really as divisive as as I think the media wants to portray within the caucus. You are going to be the first openly gay black man to be representing your district, but also you and uh, Congressman-elect Richie Torres as the two ever elected to Congress. Can you reflect on that for a minute? Yeah. You know, Richie and I will be the first openly gay Black members of Congress. Uh, and, and and that is uh, something that, frankly, I never imagined <laughs> when I was growing up. I did not think that someone like me could run for Congress, let alone get elected. And had I been able to see someone like myself in Congress growing up, uh, it would have been direct evidence of the fact that life really does get better <laughs> as you grow older uh, and you come into your own. Um, you know, I, I spent much of my life uh, thinking that there were entire professions closed off to me, in- including politics, because uh, if I were to run for office, I would have to run as an openly gay candidate and people would reject that out of hand. Uh, and so I'm really excited whenever I get a message, as I often do from people all throughout my district and all throughout this country, young and old, uh, who are saying that my candidacy is helping them to, uh, to accept who they are and to live authentic lives. Uh, and of course, uh, it is important for me and to so many others, including Richie, I think, to use our lived experiences to inform the policymaking discussions. Uh, so, so, you know, the, the the experience of queer people of color is an intersectional experience. Uh, and, and to the extent that LGBTQ people have certain challenges, whether it's accessing necessary medical care, or life-saving care, uh, homelessness, especially if you're a young uh, queer person and so on and so forth, th- that challenge is compounded when you're a person of color. And I look forward to bringing that perspective into Washington as well. Well, Congressman-elect, I really appreciate you taking the time Good luck getting yourself settled uh, in your new job, and we hope to talk with you soon. Likewise. Thanks for the opportunity. 
Mondaire Jones is the congressman-elect in New York's 17th Congressional District. We turn south now to Georgia, where Congresswoman-elect Carolyn Bordeaux turned Georgia's 7th Congressional District from red to blue. Bordeaux originally ran for the seat back in 2018, but lost to Republican incumbent Rob Woodall by 433 votes. Woodall ended up retiring, and Bordeaux won this open seat in Atlanta's fast-growing suburbs. Of course, Georgia will continue to be in the political spotlight as both Senate races there are headed to runoffs in January. I started out by asking Congresswoman-elect Bordeaux to describe her district. This is a very diverse district. It's the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta. It is very rapidly changing. Gwinnett and Forsyth, the two counties in the district, are some of the most rapidly growing counties in the country and have been for several decades. So Gwinnett, which is the anchor county, has gone from 90,000 in the 1970s to over a million people today. And so people, it's a very new community. Um, It's heavily college educated. My mother used to call neighborhoods like this hatcheries. This is where people come to raise their children. And they come from all over the country and all over the world. So as you were campaigning, um, which I know for many candidates, it was challenging trying to campaign in a time of COVID. But talk to us about the issues that you focused on, what people were talking to you about, and whether or not there was a disconnect between what you heard from voters and what you were seeing in the national conversation. COVID was just one of the dominant issues. Uh, I'm have an eight-year-old son. He is at home being digitally schooled. Over half of the children in my district are at home. Uh, so that that was a huge issue. Many of our businesses are just struggling right now because of COVID. And the frustration with our national response uh, was, was very present. We are also, the CDC is not in my district, but a number of the employees, uh, people who work there are in, live in this district. And so just a lot of concern uh, about how the state and how the national government was handling the coronavirus crisis. And that was a really central issue we ran on, that we need to get this under control, we need to get our economy back on its feet, and we need to get our children back in school. Now, I realize you have not come up to Washington yet, you haven't been sworn in yet, and you probably don't know all the members of your new caucus, Democratic caucus, but uh, I'm sure you've seen some of the news reports that, you know, there are tensions that are bubbling and and coming out publicly between some of the more progressive members of the caucus and those who sit in districts like yours that were once Republican, and uh, the tensions really stemming over the, the agenda going forward. Um, Specifically, we heard some complaints from other uh, Democrats running in districts that look somewhat like yours, that uh, issues like the defund the police or Green New Deal or Medicare for all uh, were really problematic for those Democrats. I'd like to get your point of view on that. I know uh, just in going through ads uh, that were run in your district, there was at least one that came after you for supporting um, the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, alleged that you were anti-police, anti-law and order. Talk to me about how those issues played out in your race, in your district, and how you think they will continue to, you know, be part of the conversation as you come up to Washington. I tell folks I'm here to take a passionate stand for moderation and common sense. 
and getting the job done for people. So if you look at the message we talked about, which came from hundreds of community meetings, um, my background is in working in the state budget office, uh, and I was a, a key player in helping bring both parties together to balance the budget during the Great Recession. And that was central, that I had worked with both parties to solve problems in a crisis, and that we needed to bring that those same skills and that same engagement to dealing with COVID and to dealing with the healthcare crisis. So I think we are called to just talk to people, to in explain that we are listening carefully to what they need and that we are here to be an advocate on their behalf to fix a lot of the very pressing problems that we are facing uh, in this district as a state and as a country. Realistically, how does this work given how narrow the margins are and that there doesn't seem to be a lot of incentive for folks to compromise. In other words, the people who are compromising didn't necessarily get reelected and the people who aren't compromising do win. We have become very polarized and it is grounded both in, I think, how we talk to one another, but also in some structural features of our democracy. Uh, and one of the things that I strongly favor is nonpartisan redistricting. Uh, this is a district that favors uh, that kind of moderation. Uh, I would be in little town halls or group settings, and several times I remember people commenting, ah, oh, you're so refreshingly moderate. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, that's the one of the wonderful things about this district. It is diverse, but it is really people who are grounded in just wanting common sense solutions. They want to end surprise billing. They want their prescription medications to be affordable. They want affordable health insurance. Um, and all of that, you know, was very much a part of my platform. I am concerned about how deeply polarized uh, we have become and, you know, we'll lean in to trying to bring people together to solve problems. But it may take us a little while to work through this period of, of really deep division. Well, Congresswoman-elect, congratulations. I hope uh, you get a little bit of sleep before you have to um, jump into all of this. But uh, thank you. Yeah, well, we will see you when you're when you're up here. Okay, look forward to it. Thanks so much. Carolyn Bordeaux is the representative-elect for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. A recount is announced in Georgia where Joe Biden has taken the lead with a razor-thin margin. Now all eyes are really on Georgia and the Senate races there. And Georgia's GOP senators in runoff races that could determine the balance of power. Georgia begins its hand retally of roughly 5 million presidential ballots. Can you imagine this? I really can't wrap my mind around this. If Vice President Biden holds his lead over President Donald Trump, it would mean that the state has moved from red to blue for the first time since 1992. For years, southern states like Georgia have sat reliably in the Republican column. But voters in cities like Atlanta and the surrounding suburbs played a definitive role in flipping the state, as did grassroots organizers who worked to register and mobilize voters. If that news wasn't enough, on January 5th, the state will hold runoff elections where Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler will go up against Democratic Reverend Raphael Warnock and Republican Senator David Perdue will face Democrat John Ossoff. 
The result of these two races will determine control of the U.S. Senate at a time where the country has grown incredibly polarized. Joining me to discuss the state's changing electorate and what that means for the future of statewide races is Andra Gillespie, an associate professor of political science at Emory University. What's changed in the state was that in the 2000s, we see um, a a growth in the African-American electorate um, so that by the time we're getting to the 2020, Uh, 2008 and the 2012 elections, Blacks make up about 30% of registered voters in the state. And then since 2012, uh, we have seen the Asian American and Hispanic uh, electorate grow. So it's doubled since 2012. And so while it's still a small part of Georgia's electorate, um, it's growing fast enough that along with African American voters and liberal Democratic voters who are white, Democrats are in a position to be competitive. Now, the numbers alone aren't what, you know, has made Georgia vote Democratic in this particular election. There's been a lot of political organizing behind the scenes to tap into latent Democratic voters to get them registered to vote to get them educated about the process, to get them mobilized, that um, really paid off in this particular election. So, you know, it's it's in, it's in part the multiracial coalition, which I think distinguishes Georgia from other parts of the Deep South, but it's also just this idea of mobilization and organization. And the Democratic Party of 10 years ago in Georgia wasn't equipped to do that But the new Democratic Party, largely led by the efforts of Stacey Abrams, is in a much better position to be competitive. I don't think that Democrats are, you know, now going to win every election going forward. I think we're headed into a period of contestation where we're going to have close election outcomes where Democrats win and sometimes lose elections. But Georgia, you know, is decidedly now a a swing state. Let's talk about that. Dig into you. The point you made uh, about Stacey Abrams and her success, uh, not just in 2018 in in really engaging African-American voters and voters of color, but the work that's been done on the ground now for years in finding, registering, and now turning out voters of color. What happens now in an era post-Trump, in an era where, you're right, we kind of maybe go back to quote unquote normal elections. Some people are going to wonder whether or not this uh, moment where Donald Trump has been on the ballot are a bit of an outlier. So if races have become more competitive in the Trump era because of how divisive Donald Trump is. Um, And, you know, I have two answers to that question. I mean, one, we are going to pay attention to what subsequent election outcomes look like to see what uh, post-Trump voting behavior looks like. But I also think it's really important to point out that these efforts at party building, that Stacey Abrams um, and other groups that were, you know, mostly just interested in making sure that people of color turned out to vote. So the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Black Voters Matter, et cetera, right? These folks have been on the ground and they were working long before Donald Trump descended that escalator in 2015. And so, and the projections and the aspirations that the Democratic Party of Georgia had predate the emergence of of Donald Trump um, as a national uh, political figure. So, you know, and the narrowing of elections started before Donald Trump really Mm -hmm. emerged on the scene in a fulsome way. So I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that while some of this may have been accelerated by Donald Trump um, and people's negative reactions to him, that that this that, that this actually is something that was going on independent of uh, the phenomenon of Trumpism. 
And it's also clear, though, on the other side, on the Republican side, that President Trump has been really successful in turning out low propensity rural white voters to a degree that we probably haven't seen before. So um, talk to us a little little bit about that. And, you know, if, if it's the coalition headed by Stacey Abrams that helped to really engage many for the first time, the voters of color, what happens with white voters, rural voters in a time post-Trump? Yeah. So if we look at the numbers, we see increased voter turnout, you know, amongst both Democrats and Republicans. It's how Joe Biden and Donald Trump, you know, have earned the uh, highest and second highest number of votes ever in a presidential election in U.S. history. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the Trump campaign does deserve credit for its own mobilization efforts. Um, I interpret uh, their increased voter turnout two different ways. So just in terms of just the vote choice standpoint, it looks like both the Democrats and the Republicans drilled down deeper into their base to drive up turnout amongst people who they knew were predisposed to vote for them. So I think the story still holds about how Donald Trump didn't really expand his base. But I think the important thing to kind of take away from what Trump did was that Trump did focus on on voter mobilization. And, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in what was happening um, sort of on stage at the rallies because those don't vote. But it was the data that they were collecting on people who attended rallies. It was the voter registration that was happening at rallies that allowed for opportunities for the campaign to collect data and follow up on voters that are standard operating procedure for if we're going to do a good mobilization campaign. And so the Trump campaign deserves credit for its GOTV efforts. There's these runoff elections and two Senate races, of course. And one race features African-American candidate, the Democrat, um, Raphael Warnock. Um, And I'm wondering what you think the impact will be of having an African-American candidate on the top of the ticket. And if that may be enough to keep uh, voters who might drop off, say Democratic voters who showed up in the election, to, to stay engaged and um, what your expectations are for what turnout could look like. The last time there was a Senate runoff in Georgia was in 2008. Um, mm-hmm. Again, third party candidate played a little bit of a spoiler for uh, the Republican incumbent, Saxby Chambliss, and uh, the Democratic candidate, Jim Martin, overperformed expectations in part because Barack Obama was on the ballot that year. When it moves to the runoff, the race did go back to an equilibrium, something that would have been perceived more normal for that time period where Chambliss was able to win pretty handily. Um, in the runoff election. Um, and, you know, at that time, that was very much a reflection of the fact that there were more Republicans than there were Democrats in Georgia. I think what the general election results prove is that the Democrats have grown their their base and there are more uh, Democratic voters in the state than there have been a, in a long time, proportionally speaking. And so um, the campaigns, both campaigns have to assume a rough parity in terms of the numbers of of voters that each party has at their disposal. And ultimately, I think this is going to come down to voter turnout. So whichever um, party has the best turnout operation is going to be the party that wins. Um, And I suspect it's going to be both seats. Like, I don't expect a lot of split ticket voting. So, yeah, turnout's going to be lower. Um, 
than it would be in the presidential election. But I still expect turnout to be pretty robust just because of all the investment that's coming to the state and all the campaigning that's likely to happen. And because there's going to be a greater uh, focus and attention by both Democrats and Republicans in terms of making sure that people turn out to vote early, because that might actually be the best way to bank votes from distracted people during the holiday season. But I don't think that Republicans can rest on their laurels and assume that they're more Republicans than Democratic voters in the state or look at their prior history of success in runoff elections as a barometer for much of what's going on here at this particular point. They may have one particular advantage in that um, older voters broke Republican in the general election. And those voters would be the ones who would be more likely to be high propensity voters in this particular election. But I expect that you're going to get your most rabid partisans to show up to vote, that they're going to be really motivated, and that the parties and super PACs and other interested groups are going to do everything that they can to remind voters to turn out and vote and to give them all the details and the tools that they need uh, to turn out and vote. One thing, and, and again, I don't know how accurate the exit polling is at this point, and we're going to be digging into a lot of that later on, but it does look as if, once again, we see that uh, in Georgia, white voters overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly supported Republicans. This exit poll, the AP's uh, vote cast, says only 29% of white voters cast a ballot for Biden compared to 69% for Trump. And there really was no gender gap there. White women, 30%. White men, 29%. And then I watched the most recent ad by Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who is running against Warnock, the Democrat that we talked about, um, with a a pretty clear uh, racial undertone here. She uh, attacks him for defending, she says, Jeremiah Wright. We remember him from the 2008 campaign. He was Uh, President Obama's pastor. Her ad, uh, I think it says, save the Senate, save America is the is the tagline. It's not really subtle. Is it, Andra, what they're doing? Well, Kelly Loeffler hasn't run um, a subtle campaign at all this cycle. So um, during uh, the general election season, uh, when she was trying to compete uh, with uh, Congressman Doug Collins for conservative bona fides, she described herself in an ad as more conservative than Attila the Hun. So um, I I first saw that ad um, this morning as I was watching the news. And and I can't say that I'm surprised by it. I think people, you know, knew that given... Reverend Warnock's uh, theological stances and his um, endorsement of black liberation theology that, you know, people were going to pour through his sermons and look for things that that looked radical. Um, So I think the big question here is whether or not you can invoke a 12 year old trope um, and have it have the same effect. Um, Like this is that's a reinforcing bit of information for people who are already predisposed to support Kelly Leffler. So it's a question of whether or not that actually helps helps to grow her electorate at all. Um, you know, does that appeal um, to suburban white women voters, for instance, you know, would be sort of a question, um, you know, for African-American um, voters, um, Jeremiah Wright um, and his theology are not unfamiliar Um, especially for people who did grow up in a black church tradition and grew up in a um, 
uh, liberation theology type of context. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion since those ads first aired during the Obama campaign about the wider context of what Jeremiah Wright was saying. So it's not like we don't know, you know, what preceded uh, the comment um, where, where, where Reverend Wright condemned America. Um, you know, now it does put uh, Reverend Warnock in a different position because he's not going to give the same type of speech like President Obama did to kind of neutralize the effect of that. So we're not going to see a more perfect union speech from him. Um, but, you know, these are relatively speaking known quantities. Um, and this isn't the type of of, of, of attack that I think would actually demobilize African-American voters um, because, you know, this isn't something that uh, I think many of them would question um, or would condemn even if they don't agree, you know, with, you know, sort of the, the, the theological underpinnings of, of the statement because it's not something that's wholly um, unfamiliar. And they would also recognize a racial um, attack and the racial undertones that go along with it. Andra Gillespie is an associate professor of political science at Emory University. In the hours, days, and weeks after an election, it's pretty standard we try to make sense of the patterns that developed after all the votes are counted. One element of the 2020 election that stood out to many is how in Texas, President-elect Joe Biden underperformed when it came to predominantly Latino counties in South Texas. Those counties typically break for Democrats by wide margins. Now, Biden won the majority of support in predominantly Latino precincts in El Paso and Dallas counties, but in counties along the border, including Hidalgo, Zapata, and Starr, Biden's standing slipped considerably from where Hillary Clinton stood four years ago. Even as Biden won an overwhelming majority of Latino voters, it's also clear that Republicans and the Trump campaign worked hard at the grassroots level, especially in these Texas border counties. To discuss all of this and more, I sat down with Arlise Hernandez, a San Antonio-based reporter covering the U.S. southern border, immigration, and Texas for The Washington Post. I started off by asking her if we should be surprised by the gains President Trump made in predominantly Latino counties along the border from 2016 to 2020. I think that depends on who who you ask. And, you know, let's let's be clear, like Biden did win the majority of border counties. Was surprising was the the margins that that Trump reached with uh, largely Hispanic voters down there. It's right at that mark that George W. Bush won. Um, when he was running for governor and later uh, president in Texas. Did you see that there was much of a difference, though, between how Latino voters around the border or in more rural communities voted this time versus those in more urban or suburban areas, say Harris County or around Dallas or San Antonio? There was a big difference, and there's a couple uh, reasons why. Um, first of all, the border counties, um, there are sort of few big industries, and one of those big, you know, employers is federal law enforcement. Right. All the talk about, you know, defunding police, about, you know, Border Patrol, um, you know, being, you know, enforcers of immoral, you know, immigration policies from the Trump administration, all those types of um, what they would view a tax is also an attack on the livelihoods of so many people who live down there, families, uh, and not just, you know, 
mother and fathers, but cousins and uncles and aunts um, that are all part of this matrix. And specifically in more rural uh, areas like Star County and Zapata County, uh, these are places where uh, the big employer is oil and gas. And so when Biden made his comments about, um, you know, transitioning into you know, from these fossil fuels into other types of energy. Well, again, this is an attack on their livelihoods. They interpreted it that way because these are folks who, for the most part, you know, spend weeks at a time in West Texas, um, you know, working in this industry. And there aren't that many other kinds of jobs that give you those kinds of wages uh, in these rural areas. I'm also thinking about the messages that we heard in the final days of the campaign. In 2016, the president was talking about the big, beautiful wall and banning Muslims and that, you know, Mexicans coming in who are bad people. And in 2018, it was all the talk about the caravans. And you're right, in 2020, the the talk was about more law and order issues, right? Do we really want to defund the police? That's what Democrats are telling us. Democrats are socialists. Democrats want to get rid of ICE completely. Do you think that also had an impact just in terms of the fact that the issue of the wall and immigration and who immigrants were was not as central to the conversation this time around as it was in 2016? For folks who live along the river, immigration is a part of their life, um, but it's not or it doesn't articulate or doesn't manifest in the same ways that that other, you know, populations across the country think about it. Right. And they have far more nuanced perspectives. Uh, I was talking to the, for example, Zapata County's county judge, which is sort of the top, you know, uh, political leader in that community. And, you know, he would describe sort of the perspective that they have is that, yes, we want border security. Yes, we want, you know, we don't want drug smugglers and human smugglers to be getting away with what they're doing and, you know, coming through our lands. It's mostly sparse ranch land out there. Um, But we were hoping it was more of a technology sort of security Mm. approach and not an actual physical barrier because there are other problems that come with a physical barrier if you're a ranch land owner, for example, a ranch owner, for example. But yes, sort of the the change in rhetoric, uh, even about socialism. um, And I think this is more that we need more reporting on this and more study of this. There was also quite a bit of misinformation about like, you know, Biden's connections to socialism about, you know, what what to expect in a Biden administration that also infiltrated these communities and, and was part of the conversation. But I do think that folks were far more focused on issues of economy, you know, Mm -hmm. of how my family is doing today. And lastly, what I will say, you know, going back to 2016, when the when the president when President Trump, you know, started his campaign talking about Mexicans and rapists, rapists and all of that (laughs) rhetoric, (laughs) folks that I spoke to who live along the river in these border communities were able to sort of rationalize in their heads that that wasn't them, that who the president was talking about was not them. They were talking about, and I'm going to use the term they use not to offend, but because of this is how, what the parlance is, he was talking about illegals. He wasn't talking about us, those of us who have been, you know, on this side since, you know, the 1500s, right? When we think about the next few elections going into the next midterm, the next presidential and these voters, how do you think about that? I think they're going to judge based on who had the most impact on their lives and how their mm-hmm. lives improved th- during that time. 
they're responding to people who answer their most desperate needs, right? Things like healthcare, education, the economy, right? And and so I think that'll be a part of the calculation. I also think that, you know, for folks who work in these industries like oil and gas and federal law enforcement, frankly, they're going to be watching carefully to see how a president like Biden talks about and and helps uh, those those individuals either maintain their you know their lifestyle or help them transition into a, a different kind of you know job that still pays the same kind of wage wages. And one of the things I waded into also in this piece and, and wanted to make clear is that. Part of the reason why these messages resonated or seemed to have resonated with so many people in border communities was the fact that the Republican Party did the work. There was actual investment. There were actual like organizers and activists on the ground that were doing this work and talking to people and, you know, convincing them that Trump's, you know, record on the economy and, and law and order, as you had mentioned, were things that were, you know, aligned with their own values. Um, and because this place has been so reliably blue for so long um, and, and to some degree still is, it seems as though the state party and, and to some extent the national party just basically took those votes for granted. It, it, this is what I'm hearing from, you know, activists who are from these communities and active in democratic politics. We didn't do the work. We did not organize. Right. We, we did not talk to these folks. Aurelise Hernandez is a reporter covering the U.S. southern border, immigration and Texas for The Washington Post. One more thing for me today. Some look at the election results, a Democratic White House and a likely divided Congress, and see a mandate for bipartisanship. I'm not quite as optimistic. Our elections have become proxies for cultural identity, with voters attaching existential meaning to them. We see the other side as dangerous, bent on undermining core American values. These aren't the kind of differences that can be bridged over with bipartisan infrastructure bills or a COVID stimulus package. And helping to fuel our estrangement is a media ecosystem driven by algorithms and business models designed to keep us outraged with what the other side is doing. So is it realistic to think Biden can bridge this divide? Where Trump reveled in stoking animosity and division, Biden is committed to turning down the heat. And by doing so, he's hoping others follow his lead. President-elect Biden also enters the White House with higher favorable ratings than Trump did back in 2017. But is that enough? Can we see a real working relationship between a Republican-held Senate and a Democratic White House? Well, I don't see any incentive to make bipartisanship work. Politicians raise money and their profile by being voices of opposition, not moderation. In the past, when I was asked what it would take to break the partisanship and gridlock in Washington, I said I thought it was going to take something truly horrible happening, like a war or a Great Depression type of economic collapse. But here we are. Almost a year into the worst pandemic this country has seen in 100 years, and this crisis, instead of bringing us together, has become yet another thing that divides us. Even as we flirt with a dangerous descent into a deadly third wave of the virus this winter, those divisions are likely to remain. This is one time when I hope I will be proven wrong, but I fear that I won't. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Yakup is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>